spend the last session today in Second Peter chapter 3. So we have it in the notes. Um, let's just start uh, with uh, Roman numeral 1. The scoffing spirit and the day of the Lord. The sessions fire from the heavens. The scoffing spirit and the day of the Lord. Scoffers and the day of the Lord. Peter starts off. Beloved ones, this is already the second letter I have written to you, in both of which I am trying to awaken your pure manner of thinking by way of reminder, in order that you may remember the utterances spoken in advance by the holy prophets and the command of uh, the Lord and and Savior issued through your holy apostles. First of all, knowing this, In the latter days, blatant scoffers will come, conducting themselves according to their own covetous desires and saying, Where is his promised coming? For ever since our fathers fell asleep, all things continue on in the same way as they have from the beginning of creation. The scoffing spirit, the spirit that mocks, the spirit that takes things that should be treated with reverence and fear and trivializes them and makes nothing of them. The spirit that should fear the day of God instead of fearing the day of God ignores it, forsakes it, doesn't take it seriously. Peter, knowing that all of us if we're not careful, can easily go down the road of the scoffing spirit, says, this is the second letter I have written to you. I'm trying to counteract that thing in you. By way of reminder, what are they scoffing about? What's the content of their scoffing? The thing that they're not taking seriously. Where is his promised coming? Of all the things that should be treated with respect and reverence, the day of the Lord should be that thing. Everything else except our standing before the creator of the heavens and the earth on that day is meaningless. It's irrelevant. What is driving the scoffing spirit, according to Peter? They're being driven. They're conducting themselves according to their own covetous desires. Things that they want that are in contrast to the things that God wants. The deceits of their own mind. The deceits, the desires that cloud our thinking. Well, if I, life is going to be, life is much easier, much more convenient if I don't think about the truth. So, because I don't want to face the idea that I'm going to stand before God one day. Let me do this. I'm not going to take it seriously. Now, where is his promise coming? For ever since our fathers fell asleep, ever since my grandpa, ever since my dad died, ever since the patriarchs died, ever since Adam and Eve, everything just goes on and on and on in the same old way. People keep going to Starbucks. People just keep 
going to school, going to get their PhDs, their this and that, just life. Everything about life just kind of creates this impression that, you know, just things are going on, business as usual. And I know for my, myself, I'm always just one prayer away or one lack of a prayer away from starting to just fall asleep again and just get sucked up with the, sucked into the, the daily routine of life. Now, false prophets and false teachers and the scoffing spirit. When Peter says these things about scoffers will come, scoffing in the last days, you need to think of that in light of the entire Old Testament testimony where this theme is prominent. What is the influence that a certain messenger a priest, a teacher, has on the people based on the words they say, based on the way they interpret the scriptures, based on the way they present God, based on the way they present the knowledge of God, who God is, based on the way they respond and they react on the basis of how they're presenting God. Babylon is coming. No, Babylon's not coming. Babylon's not coming. Everything's good. There's no storm. God's not mad with us. We've, we've got the temple. We can just flee to the temple for protection. Uh, book of Jeremiah, chapter 23. Among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen something horrible. They commit adultery and live a lie. They strengthen the hands of evildoers. Something the prophets are doing here, or the so-called prophets, is resulting in evildoers being strengthened to continue in their evil. So that no one turns from his wickedness. They're all like Sodom to me. The people of Jerusalem are like Gomorrah. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says concerning the prophets. I will make them eat bitter food and drink poisoned water. Because from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has spread throughout the land. The message is coming from their their own minds. And the fruit is a lack of repentance and a lack of godliness in the land. A lack of fear concerning the judgments of God. A lack of sobriety concerning the day of recompense. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. Things are going to be good no matter how you respond. You just keep on living this way. Keep living in immorality. No big deal. God doesn't really mind. Oh, sweet. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says, you will have peace. There's a false equation in the Lord's mind. How can you despise me and follow the the stubbornness of your own hearts and rebel against my ways and yet say, we we don't have a problem here. Okay. Which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or to hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath. A whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The counsel of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The Lord takes his day seriously. And in his counsel, it is to be feared. It is to be feared. And we are to take nothing for granted. We are to assume nothing. And we are to let him search our hearts. And when he confronts our sin, we repent and let him cleanse us and receive his mercy. 
But the, res- the proper response is not, we can continue living in our own stubborn ways. And yet think that God will not hold us accountable. Second Peter 2. But fa- he ex- here, Second Peter, in the, the chapter right before Second Peter 3, where we're lo- which we're looking at, he makes the connection explicit. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift, swift destruction. That the teachers, what they're teaching is producing a scoffing spirit just in the same way that the false prophets and what they taught and the messages they brought produced a scoffing spirit which was expressed through a lack of repentance, a lack of the fear of the Lord, a presumption. Many will follow their sensuality because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Greed, driving a manipulation and exploitation of words to take advantage Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. From the earliest of days, the Lord God Jehovah has said, I'm going to hold these people accountable, and their judgment is not sleeping. It's not idle. It's moving. It's waiting. And I believe when we get to chapter 3, we get a little bit of a glimpse of what he means by that. The severity of God... We're going to look at both the severity of God today, this session, and the kindness of God. You can't understand the kindness and the mercy of God unless you have a real clear understanding of His severity and vice versa. There's lots of things, you you hear lots of people talking out there about God's love and His mercy, but then any mention of the day of the Lord and the fear of the Lord, they just get massively offended and yet you know they like the warm fuzzies but any definition of the mercy of God apart from the day of the Lord has no bite it has no substance to it it's me it's it's not concrete it doesn't produce any real fruit however any proclamation of the day of the Lord without any proclamation of the mercy of God in many cases leads to self-righteousness okay where you get the street preacher, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you wicked sinners. When in reality, God, God's like, um, true, but dude, you better preach the mercy of God to them, otherwise you might end up with them because of your own self-righteousness, dude. Okay? So you have to hold these things in tension. The mercy of God, the severity of God, both are deeply offensive when considered in light of their full magnitude and extent. God's justice is much more just than we realize. And God's mercy is much more merciful than we realize. And when we stare at the extent of His justice, and when we stare at the extent of His mercy, both have great potential to offend us. We don't like the idea of smoke, the smoke of their torment rising forever and ever. And so, we don't like the idea that Jeffrey Dahmer, 
is seen as, that I am seen as no less a sinner than that guy. Right? And so, whether God is showing us the depth of his mercy for even the worst of sinners, or the severity of his coming judgments, because he really hates sin. And he really hates the influence, the leavening, corrupting influence it has on his creation. When we stare at both of those realities, we need to come in humility so that they can lead us to a deeper cry of repentance and leaning on him rather than offense. Okay? Now, we're going to talk about some intense things as if, you know, we're already talking about a few intense things, but buckle up. We, the, the scripture is not shy about these things. No small print. This is central to the apostolic teaching. The day of the Lord. Within uh, the, te- uh, esch- the teaching on eschatology, whether Jesus, particularly Jesus, but so the others as well, the apostles as well, the two main pictures the typological examples that are to instruct us. The days of Noah, where God issues a warning about a judgment to come, raises up a messenger to build an ark as a sign and a testimony with a lag in time as an expression of his mercy towards the wicked who are about to be, who will be punished by that coming judgment. We saw it happen. We have it portrayed in scripture. We weren't there, but we have the testimony. We have the testimony, an example of the way it works. The other one is the days of Lot. You know, we talk, read Matthew 24, and we know about the days of Noah. But Luke 17, in addition to the days of Noah, it also talks about the days of Lot, as it was in the days of Lot as well. So it will be in the days of the, of, of the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, letter B, let's go to uh, number two, letter B. The flood, water released... From the storehouses. Now, the flood, the waters, when the time of judgment came, God had water stored up in the reserves of the earth. It says the great deep burst open and and, and it, it exploded basically, and then the windows of the heavens were opened. Right? Now let's let's look at this in Second Peter three here. Where is this promise coming? Ever since our fathers fell asleep, all things continue on in the same way as they have from the beginning of creation. You see, the thing that keeps escaping their notice because they want it to. How's that? I mean, doesn't get any... That, they're, that they're, their ability to see is being clouded by their desire. The thing they're willfully overlooking is this. The heavens and the earth existed long ago, held together in proper place... By the word of God, out of water and through water. Or it could be by means of water there. And by means of these things, the world at that time experienced destruction when it was deluged with water. This is my own translation here. The point here is that when God created the heavens and the earth, he, he was the one who arranged it. 
I love some of the, the pictures that scripture applies to the creation. That the earth is set on pillars. They may shake, but they don't fall. Usually when pillars shake, they fall. God can shake the pillars, but keep them from crumbling altogether. He's the one who holds it together. He's the one who arranges it. He's the one who holds it in place. Genesis 1, 6-10, in the beginning, it's, this is referencing the beginning in 2 Peter 3, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. It was so. God called the expanse heaven or heavens. There was evening, there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. So when God created the heavens and the earth and he caused them to stand in their proper place by his word, he says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. So the expanse comes out from the midst of water, out of water, through water. And then that expanse was expanded to become the heavens. And then the waters below the expanse were still, were still gathered. And he gathered those waters and dry land appeared. So whether, when, when it talks about their, uh, that they're held together in proper place uh, by the word of God out of water and through water. In both senses it applies where if he's, if he's highlighting the fact that there was, there was water below the expanse. And that land came up out of the water. It's, coming, it, it's either coming through the water spatially, right? Because it it's coming through the water and appearing. Or by means of water where God is, who knows, like he's, he's using water to, to push other water in, in, in storehouses and getting it in its proper place. Whichever sense we think of it, there's, there's a lot of intense things happening here. And God is the one who arranges the entire creation in their exact proper location. And if he didn't sustain it, it would all crumble. But he sustains it. Now, when he did this, when he arranged the creation, he, let's go to Job 38. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. The boundaries of the sea and the land are controlled by the word of God. Not a single sand, a grain of sand on the seashore is there apart from the word of God. He says, waves, you stop there. And he says, waves, you wipe out that city. And it's the word of God who does it. They all deserve to be wiped out, but he restrains it and keeps that ocean back because of his mercy. Okay? Now, he set its doors and its bars in place. Now, go to Psalm 33. This imagery of the storehouses, the Hebrew there for storehouses is osarot. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and he puts the deep in storehouses. He stores water in places, and not only the water, let's go to the next one. Sorry, I'm looking for it. 
Actually, I'm going to hold off from there. We're going to see here in a minute. He doesn't just store the water, but all the elements. We're going to get, I've got that in the next section, though. He stores up not only the water in the storehouses, but the wind and, and the fire as well. Now, in the beginning, God put water in these storehouses. When he divided the waters, you got water. There's even scriptures that talk about waters in the heavens, above the heavens. And I, I, there's a lot of water going on in lots of places. And it's there by the word of God. It's sustained there. It's not, it doesn't just come into existence by his word, but it's sustained by his word. It's held in place by its word, by his word. In Genesis chapter 7, we see that when the time of the flood came, that water that had been located in the storehouses, stored away, held back for the time of judgment, was now opened up, let loose, released. Let's read it. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Water stored away, where? In the depths of the earth. And the windows of the heavens were open. Water coming down. Water coming up. Water coming down. And rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And then Genesis 8, 1 through 3, we have the same language of the fountains of the deep. And the windows of the heavens again. God remembered Noah. God made a wind blow over the earth. The water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed the rain from the heaven was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. God determines the boundaries of the waters after the flood, just like he did in the beginning. And with the flood, what do we have? We have almost, in a sense, a, an act of creation, don't we? We have the old order cleansed by water, and we go into a new phase Let's go uh, to uh, Psalm 102. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the water. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. Just a, a side note, to say that God destroys the earth doesn't mean out of existence or annihilation. Usually it means cleansing. Okay, just with the, with the flood, it's the, that explicit language is there that God destroyed the earth. But the earth didn't go out of existence. It was, it was renewed in a sense. It was cleansed. It was brought to ruin. It, I mean, it, it was intense, but it didn't mean that it went out of existence. You covered it with the deep as with the garment. The water stood above the mountains. Here, he's now moving, it seems, from the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth and established the waters in their place. At the flood, God did some shifting. He let the waters out of their storehouses in the deep and their storehouses in the heavens, and he covered the earth with it in an act of judgment. But just as in the beginning... When God spoke, now at the flood, God speaks. And he rebukes and the waves. And he says, at your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. 
You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. And he promised that, again, he wouldn't destroy by what? By water, right? So he's been faithful to that. He's, he's, he's been true to that. And so here's the same. The Psalm 104 here seems to be drawing from the language of Genesis 7. All the mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And then Psalm 104, you covered it with the deep as with the garment. The water stood above the mountains. So it seems pretty clear that he's, he's shifted from the initial creation to the flood. Now, let's get back to 2 Peter 3. The present heavens and the earth are stored up with fire. You know, I, I, I can't go into all the... I don't want to take my last 20 minutes here and turn it into a, a grammar lesson, okay? I have a lot of reasons why I'm translating 2 Peter 3, 7 different than a lot of translations. And I, I'm going to... when I Some work I'm doing on a translation project, I'm going to... I'm going to argue that out and make it clear in that, in that context. But for now, just bear with me. However, by the same word, the present heavens, along with the earth, are stored up with fire. Usually it gets translated as stored up for fire. And I kind of know where they, they're, they're coming from in that. But because of, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that the translators themselves are being driven by Platonism, but because Platonism is so rife in the church, when we read the present heavens and the earth are stored up for fire, we usually interpret that to mean destined for annihilation. And so what the fruit of that is, we end up trying to figure out how do we maneuver these pieces in 2 Peter 3, because it seems that Peter went out and smoked something before he got to 2 Peter 3. And that... The entire testimony of Scripture doesn't match with what he's saying here. And so what ends up happening is we, we say, well, we want to, we really, you know, especially for premillennialists, you know, if we say there's a millennium and we've got all these Old Testament passages that talk about a kingdom on the earth, but if it's being burned up, okay, we're going to take these verses and, and apply them to the end of the millennium, to a hypothetical scenario, what might happen at the end of the millennium. And so we go and have coffee and have a nice talk about what might hap- hypothetically happen at the end of the millennium. Instead of seeing Peter's discourse as a seamless flow, and that he's talking, all, all these events are concerning the day of the Messiah's appearing. You can't, he's not just taking, okay, we're going to take the verse that talks about Jesus, the second coming and apply it to just before the millennium, and then take these other verses and just kind of, well, we don't really know what Peter's talking about here, so put him back, push him at the end of the millennium. And you can always test a, you know, a principle, I think, that's pretty valid. You can test ideas by their fruit. If an idea leads you only to go have coffee with your friends and have an abstract conversation about what happens at the end of the millennium, interesting, but my guess is that's not what Peter had in mind. <laughs> If the passage causes us to tremble and asking God for grace to walk worthy, that's a lot, you're, you're probably getting a little closer there. Okay. So I digress a little bit, but just to give some context. The present heavens and the earth are stored up with fire, being held back until the day when ungodly men will be judged and 
destroyed. Just as in the days of Noah, he had the water in the storehouses. He prophesied that the day of judgment was coming, but he held it back because the Lord, the Lord, the merciful and compassionate God is gracious and slow to anger, but he does get angry eventually. Eventually, he does. But man, he wants, he wants as many to repent as possible. But at some point, he lets it go. Because he's the one who ordains and appoints where all the elements in creation are stationed and situated. Job 38. Have you entered the storehouses, the osarot of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses, the osarot of the hell? What's interesting, Jeremiah 50, 25 uses the same word in reference to the Lord to talk about his armory. The armory of the Lord, the storehouses of the Lord, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war. What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, where the east wind is scattered? Now, look at Isaiah 24, clearly end of the age context. Look what he says here. Where is he getting this language? He's getting it from the flood. Terror and pit are, and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened. This is not water this time, is it? Isaiah 24 is definitely not talking about water. God promised it's not going to happen by water this time. But remember that same language. The windows of the heavens were opened and the floodwaters came down. He's saying it again. The windows of heaven are opened and this time fire will come down. And the foundations of the earth tremble. Genesis 19. Sodom and Gomorrah. We know the story. Then the Lord rained, saw, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. The Lord had fire stored away in the storehouses. And there was a city. There were two cities. Very wicked cities. And God really wanted to show mercy to those cities. If he could just find a few righteous people. Didn't find them. And he let the ammo out of his storehouses, out of his armory. And Peter, interestingly enough, if there's any doubt that he's got this scenario of Sodom and Gomorrah on his mind, when he moves into 2 Peter chapter 3, read 2 Peter 2, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and not only that, we're supposed to learn something from that burning. He made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And Peter's about to flesh that out in chapter 3, isn't he? That once again, the heavens and the earth are stored up with fire. Just as it was in the days of Lot. One interest, you know, we, who, the story of the conquest of Canaan. Read this in Joshua 10. As Israel's enemies fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord, who? 
the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. Now listen, in case there's any doubt, who's doing the conquest of Canaan? And the inhabitants of the earth knew that this wasn't just like some holy, this wasn't just like a holy war just initiated by some guys that wanted to go off to war and use, no, Things are happening that only God can do, and the inhabitants who are receiving the judgments are able to see that enough to interpret it, that these guys are just little guys. God's the one doing the judgment here. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Psalm Psalm 11. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines. Think test. He's looking. He's he's looking in the little nooks of our hearts. He examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. He hates. He hates human trafficking. He hates sin. He hates idolatry. But he loves idolaters. Oh, but I tell you what, every time incense is given to a demon, oh, the living God is burning with jealousy. And though... He restrained the day will come when those demons and those false gods will be toppled from their lofty place. Oh, but he loves the people that are still the slaves of those demons and he's giving us time. But the time is short. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. David, who's writing this psalm, gets the point of Sodom and Gomorrah. That it's not just about those two cities, but it's to teach us and instruct us from the Torah, the instruction concerning God's zeal for his day. These other examples, you can just read some, you know, when it says that fire is stored away in the storehouses of the heavens and the earth. There's lot, you read the book of Revelation, there's lots of fire coming down. <laughs> there's lots of examples here. First angel blew his trumpet. There followed hell and fire. A third of the earth burned up. All green grass burned up, burning with fire, blazing like a torch. A great star fell, blazing like a torch. Revelation 9, a star fell from heaven to the earth, given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opens the shaft and there's smoke coming up. And probably, I don't know. I don't know what all the mechanics look like. I know there's a lot of fire down there. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of, the scientists know that. And it's being held back. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And then here we have the hordes of the Antichrist. I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him. Torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. And we're not, people, we're not even talking about the lake of fire here yet. This is all just the precursor. Like a climactic appeal to the nations of the earth. To please repent. If, if, if it's possible for them. If they haven't taken the mark. There's all kinds of little intricate dynamics here. And we're not, you, know, you can get into the discussion. When does what fire come and all that kind of thing. I mean those are good discussions. 
But the main point is that fire is coming right now. There's fire in the heavens. It's stored away there, and it's stored away in the earth. They're his armories. The kindness of God. For us to understand the kindness of God, I know it's been intense, but people, when that drop of Jesus' blood is applied and sprinkled to us, and it keeps us from that lake of fire, it only makes sense in light of the reality of how deep our sin really, really is in the sight of the living God, and it, our, His mercy and His restraint only makes sense in light of the way He truly sees our depravity and the way He sees the sin of the earth. But I tell you this, and I'm going to say this as clearly as I know how. The Lord God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the Lord God Jehovah, the God of Israel, has a day of battle. He has fire stored up in the heavens and he is merciful but the Lord has a day of battle against every pornographic magazine that has defiled the eyes of a man the Lord God Almighty has a day of battle and a day of recompense for every single instance of human trafficking not only those big issues, but the Lord our God has a, has a day of battle in store for every pen that has been used to write an idea that has had an influence on a human mind in a way that pushes them from the knowledge of the living God. The Lord God Almighty has fire held back aimed at the cities of the earth that rebel against him and that shake their fist at the living God and he has a day of battle with a man called the little horn a man of lawlessness who will dare presume to set himself up in the temple of God and declare himself God but when the day of Jesus appears and he comes with his angels in the father's glory he will slay that false imposter and the powers that govern him with the sword of his mouth. But it is not this day because he is merciful. But that day is coming. And if we are going to understand his mercy towards the nations of the earth, towards us, we must understand this day. And we must understand that that fire that is kindled in the last days is but a precursor to eternal fire. Oh, it is coming. And it is severe but praise be to God through Messiah Jesus our Lord a way of mercy has been made and God is restraining he's restraining he is restraining and if he had not have restrained if he had not restrained none of us would be in this room right now None of us. We all deserve fire and burning sulfur right now in this. The miracle of 9-11 was not that the miracle of 9-11 was that God didn't do it to the rest of us. Does this make sense? That is the true miracle. 
When I, Timothy Patrick Miller, because of my sin, I deserve that plane to come and crush me and then for God to pluck me up in the resurrection of the wicked and to curse me and to cast me into the lake of fire. That's what I deserve. The miracle is that God would actually give the earth a teeny tiny little wake-up signal. That's a miracle. Interpreting these things in light of his mercy. Now, this is Peter's point. Beloved ones, this one thing must not escape your notice. What the Lord one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years are as one day. The Lord is not delayed concerning his promise in the way some think of delay. Rather, rather he is acting with long suffering towards you because he does not want anyone to be lost, but wants all people to come to repentance. Romans 2. Do you despise the riches of his kindness? Restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. Here's the irony of it. As severe as the day of the Lord is, if you give yourself mercy in light of that day, but don't extend it to others, you yourself fall in this category... Not in this category. Do you see what I'm saying? The mercy of God. And here's the deal. I, above all men, deserve that fire. But I am no less a sinner. I am no less a sinner than any of the people in this city. Than the, than the businessman who is giving himself. He is giving himself and all, ruining his family and living for mammon. Or the homosexual, or the, the, whoever, the drunkard, the robber, the murderer, whatever category. None of us are less sinners, and it's only by the blood of Jesus that we're saved. But we must repent of that, and we must walk in the fear of the Lord in light of the day as we, once we receive that mercy. And we relate to people on the basis of that mercy. In light of this, in light of both the kindness of God and the severity of God, what is the response? What kind of people ought we to be? The day of the Lord will arrive like a thief. And that means for those who are not anticipating it, first, or who have been warned about it, First Thessalonians 5, the day in which the skies or the heavens will pass away or pass by or move past. Either way you translate it, if it, you know, Pass away in, a sen- in the sense of, it doesn't mean out of, its pre- it's out of existence altogether, but in its present form as corrupted by decay and filled with evil. And I've listed quite a few passages there just to make that point clear, that when you read those. But it could also be to move past, you know, the, the hide until the storm of the Lord passes by. It could also mean that. With a crackling sound or with a shrill sound. And the elements... Put a comma there behind elements. That's a really important comma, just so you know. The elements will pass away or will pass by or move past with a crackling sound, with a shrill sound. And the, the elements, burning with great heat, will be turned loose, will be loosed, will be unleashed. 
and the earth and the works done in it will be discovered, exposed, found out. Since all these things are certain to be turned loose in this way, what sort of people must we be in holy conduct and godly acts as we wait expectantly for and urgently desire the coming of the day of God, the day because of which the skies blazing with fire will be loose and the elements burning with great heat will certainly melt. But according to his promise, we are waiting expectantly for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The issue with the fire is to cleanse it of evil, not to just replace it, but to cleanse it. Therefore, take note of that word. The day the, the earth and all of its works will be discovered, will be found out. Therefore, beloved ones, since you are waiting expectantly for these things, endeavor diligently to be discovered, spotless and blameless before him, and at peace. Be like Lot, be like Noah. Don't be like the other ones. Trust in the grace of God. Relate to people on the basis of the mercy of God. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Forsake sin. Cry out for God. When the, when the temptation hits, hit our face. Cry out for grace. Cry out for mercy and grace in our time of need. Let the Spirit and the groans of the Spirit come and strengthen us. And say, no devil, I believe that fire is coming. I believe that you will be thrown there. And though I deserve it, and though I there, I deserve to be there with you. Above all men, I boast in the cross of Jesus. I boast in the blood of Jesus. And you take your lives with you and leave me alone. And the fire of the Spirit and the groanings of the Spirit come, and suddenly, where you wanted to indulge in that woman's body with lust, suddenly the Spirit comes and the fire comes and burns it away, and the devil has to flee. What kind of people ought we to be? What kind of people ought we to be? Keep thinking of our Lord's long-suffering salvation. But don't be foolish and misinterpret it as indifference. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the seven churches of Revelation. What kind of people ought we to be? And we're going to let Jesus' message of those seven churches be the springboard for discussing what kind of people... Therefore, ought we to be so that our works and our lives are discovered to be blameless before him and that we fall in the lot and the Noah category on that day and we're not lulled to sleep by the spirit of this age. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you to fill us with your spirit and give us grace to walk worthy of the age to come in eternal glory. Oh, Jesus, we need you. We love you and we ask you to prepare us and give us power over our sin and over the devil. We trust in the power of your cross to cleanse us from our iniquity more than the power of sin to maintain a grip in our lives. And we trust in your power to shield us from the imposters and the liars that mock you day and night. Whose destiny is eternal fire. We trust in your power to pluck us from their own fate and their destiny, Jesus, to give us strength to walk in the narrow path. We tremble before your day and we thank you for your mercy and light of that day. Give us grace as your church to walk in the fear of the Lord in Jesus' name.